My name is Matthew. I have the privilege of serving on staff as pastoral assistant for community and care. And today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, from the NIV. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is God's word. Thank you, Matthew. From now until Christmas, we are going to be exploring specific themes from the Christmas account. Themes that might feel familiar, but are actually surprising when you look at them in detail. And this morning, we're going to focus on the theme of faith. Let's pray together and let's ask the Spirit of God to speak to us all this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness and grace and that every person in this room and those joining us online matter to you. Thank you that you have made a way for us to know you. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. I pray that you would teach us this morning what it means to trust you, what we are to do with our doubts, what we are to do with our burdens when it comes to trusting you. I pray that you'd speak to us all as a church and that you'd speak to each one of us prophetically and individually. You know our needs. So as we open your word, would you open our hearts? And for anyone here who does not yet know you, I pray that today they would come to know in all that Jesus has done for them and believe and be saved. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, it was on a cold night in the year 1906 that a revolution in communication occurred. 
the engineer and inventor, Reginald Fessenden, great name, by the way. If you have any friends looking for baby names, I highly recommend Reginald. He sent a Morse code from his workshop in Massachusetts to all the ships at sea, telling them to expect a forthcoming important message. But when the telegraphers had all assembled in their shipboard radio shacks with their headphones on waiting for the tapping of Morse code, they heard the unimaginable. They heard history being made, for they heard the sound of a human voice broadcast in the world. And what did they hear the voice saying? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. The voice was reading from the Gospel of Luke. That night in 1906 was Christmas Eve. The broadcast was revolutionary, and that night it brought good news. Well, over the next few weeks, the historic account that we're going to be looking at is the very source of this good news. Luke, the author, is recording for us the truths and events that we celebrate at Christmas, truths that not only come in a revolutionary manner, but also that bring a revolutionary change. And the question I want us to be asking this morning and over the next few weeks as we think about and celebrate Christmas is, How do we experience this revolutionary change? How should we be responding to the truths of Christmas? These are questions for all of us, whether you're new to church and you're exploring Christian faith or you've been a Christian for many, many years, we need to ask, how are we responding to the truths we're hearing? The Gospel of Luke sets out for us all the events pertaining to the life death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for us all. But here at the beginning, a lot of time and attention is given to Mary and the miraculous virgin birth. Now, before we go any farther, this every year, it always raises questions, perhaps in your own mind or the minds of your family and friends. You're like, great, Christmas time is when all these Christians are talking about like a virgin birth. And and as I've been told, like, isn't that embarrassing to you? People ask, isn't it just embarrassing to talk about this, this whole thing? Like, we all know it wasn't true. It's the reaction I often get. Let me just say a couple things as we're thinking about this story. Luke, as he's writing this for us, he's intending that it's looked at in light of the rest of Israel's history and the whole Bible's storyline. And when we do, we discover that the virgin birth is not some random, miraculous act. It's actually the fulfillment of a promise anticipated in the Old Testament. Zooming back even farther, when we look at everything in the Bible that it claims about God and how he works in the world, does this story become less likely or more likely? I mean, if God exists, then miracles are possible. Miracles are recorded 
from cover to cover all throughout the Bible. God is able to intervene into the world he created. So in light of that, does this story become less likely? No, it becomes more likely. In fact, as it's been said, Christianity is one grand miracle. The whole thing is supernatural. And Luke would not have written down these words as a historic account if he did not believe that it were true. And our passage today captures the moment this angel appears to Mary about this miraculous event that would bring the Savior of the world into the world. But it's more than just about facts. Why is so much time and attention given to Mary's response? Well, I believe it is because, in many ways, her response is a model for how we are to respond to the truths of Christmas and to Christian truth in general. It's a story about Mary's faith. But as we read it, we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we responding in the same way? How are we responding to the word of God? How are we responding to Jesus? This is a model of real faith. But when you look at it in detail, you might be surprised by some of its characteristics. And the first we note is this. It is an honest faith. Are we responding with an honest faith to the truth of God? An angel appears to Mary, and we note that her response is quite different from the caricature that people often have about faith. Many people view someone who has faith as like naive, like your friends or family, like, oh, that's so adorable. You guys have faith? Do you like go to Christmas Eve? Like, oh, do you like candles? It's so cute. Some people look at you and you think, well, that, that's naive. Or perhaps you just think it's, oh, faith is for people who just accept things blindly. Like, oh, oh, right, you're an idiot. That's why you believe, of course. Or perhaps you think, well, Men and women of other generations in history, they used to believe in all kinds of supernatural things. So of course a woman like Mary's gonna believe in that because they all believed in the miraculous. But Luke presents a different picture of faith. It is an honest faith. Look again, if you have your Bibles open, Luke chapter one, verse 26 through 29. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And notice her response in verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. How did Mary respond? She was greatly troubled, and she wondered, which in the original language, that word wonders means that she was adding things up in her mind. She's going, wait a minute. What is happening? How is this happening? What does this mean? She's questioning what is taking a place. 
Now, this is different from the popular belief that, oh, people back then, they just assumed this stuff happened all the time. But Mary wasn't like, oh, hi, angel of light. <laughs> What's going on? Of course you're here. It's Tuesday. <laughs> I don't know what day the angel appeared, but it's not normal. She's greatly troubled. But also note that she wondered, meaning she doesn't unwittingly accept what is happening. She actually wrestles with it. It might even include some initial doubt. How am I supposed to understand what is happening right now? Which is very interesting because earlier in this account, a man named Zachariah was rebuked for his doubt. See, if you read the story earlier in chapter one, Zechariah was the father of the famous John the Baptist. And earlier, an angel had appeared to him, telling him that though he and his wife were far advanced in years, they were going to have a child. He doubts, and he is rebuked for it. But here, in our text, Mary is not rebuked. Why? Well, when you look at the Bible and you look at doubt, there are two different reasons that, that people doubt. On the one hand, for some of us, doubt is not just simply asking a question or desiring more information. For many of us, doubt is driven by a need to stay in control. So the question is not, how can this be? The response is, it cannot be. I know for me, before becoming a Christian, I had my doubts. I had my questions. But there was a certain point in time in which I was given a lot of good answers to my questions, and yet I still refused to believe. For me, it wasn't a matter of needing more information. It's I didn't want to relinquish control. Because I started noticing the implications of Christianity. Like, wait a minute. If Jesus is Lord, that means I'm not. And that doesn't sound like good news. Good news is me in charge. That, that's good news, at least as much as I thought back then. And so I continued to doubt. Why? Because I was afraid. I was afraid of where the truth would take me. And so I stuck with my doubts. They were no longer based on, on rational thought or, or logic. It was a need to be in control. For some of us, Doubt is not driven by a desire to get more information, but a need to stay in control. And let's be honest, it is often driven by fear. So for some, doubt is driven by control. But for others, doubt is driven by an openness to follow where the truth leads. Now, this is an important lesson for those who are not yet Christians as well as for the church today. There are some who doubt and they refuse to go where the truth takes them. There are others who have an initial doubt, but they're open to being led. And I love that because God does not go around our doubt. He goes through our doubt. The question is, are you determined to stay in control? For those in the church, do you 
respond to God's work with a doubting attitude that seeks to retain control. See, again, this is not the caricature of blind faith, right? We don't have like a sign at the door of church saying, leave your logic and all rational thought at the door. Like it's not a thing. Like you go to Disneyland, it's like, now you leave the real world, enter a world of fantasy where you're gonna spend millions of dollars. And you're like, oh, good, because it's magic. I use my card and it's magic. Then the next day, it's like $1,000 overdraft. You're like, what have I done? The church is not a place where you're not allowed to bring your questions. Oftentimes people view the church like that. I don't know if I can come to church because I got some questions. We love your questions. Bring them. But the question for you is, are you willing to go where the truth takes you? Or will you seek to remain in control? There are so many times in my life where one of the reasons where I won't pray about a particular topic, I have my doubts, is not because I need more information. It's because I'm trying to stay in control. How do you respond when the Holy Spirit is leading you, guiding you, convicting you? Do you respond with a, I don't know how it can be, but I'm willing or do you respond with a, it can't be, no. These are questions we need to ask ourselves because when it comes to doubt, a lot of us think that we need to sort out our doubt apart from faith and without the truth of God's word rather than allowing God's truth to lead us and bringing our doubts to God. See, a lot of Christians think this. You're wrestling with a season of doubt, and you're like, well, I can't come to church. I can't go to prayer. I, I can't go to community group because I've got my doubt. Hey, bring your doubt. God is not afraid of your doubts. Bring your doubts to God and allow the truth to lead you. This is an honest faith. Mary was troubled, and she wondered. She was figuring it out, and we see examples of this all throughout the Bible. A beautiful and powerful Illustration is found much later in the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus when a man who has a demonized son brings his boy to Jesus asking for healing and deliverance. And Jesus speaks to the father and says, do you believe that I can free this young boy? And the father, I love his honest answer. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love that honesty because it reflects the mess that is often in my own heart. I'm often like, yes, Lord, I believe you can do that, but I also kind of not sure if you can, but I'm just going to come to you anyway. I mean, how many of you feel like that at times? It's so true. We've got this like wrestling match going on in our hearts, but the point is, will you bring it to Jesus? And the beautiful thing about that story is the man says, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus heals the boy. He doesn't go around our doubts. He goes through our doubts. It's an honest faith. Throughout the Psalms, in particular in the Old Testament, there is a radical honesty, one that even expresses doubt, but also an openness to be led by the truth. That's the reoccurring theme you see in the Psalms. Psalm 13, for example, honestly expressing in a moment of struggle and suffering, the psalmist says, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? But then notice the willingness in verse three. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. The psalmist expresses the wrestling but then asks for comprehension and brings the doubts to God. It is a faith that is both honest, but also a faith that is willing to be led. Friends, with your doubts, they arise in all of us. But what are you doing with them? Are you allowing your doubt to keep you from God? Or are you bringing your doubts to God? Are you seeking to retain control? And that's why you're not gonna engage in, in prayer or in hearing the truth, or are you willing to go where the truth takes you? Friends, when we look at the life of Mary in this moment, it is a call to an honest faith, expressing the wonder and the troubling, but also willing to be led. Which leads to the second characteristic. We not only see and need to respond with an honest faith, but secondly, a humble faith. There are a number of reasons that Mary would have been surprised on that day. One of them, no doubt, was the nature of the greeting. There's an angel that just showed up. But there are other reasons. And it wasn't just the nature of the greeting, it was the content of the greeting. Notice what the angel says to her about her. Verse 30 to 35, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Notice her response in verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice how Mary responds to the message of the angel. She's aware of this. Whatever God is going to do, it will not be based on her ability or her worthiness. Let me just say it again, because this is key. Whatever God was going to do, it was not going to be based on her ability or her worthiness. Her attitude in response to the angel does not reflect a woman who expected angelic visits or divine favor from heaven. This is a little bit important because if Mary was completely different from all the other young Jewish girls, as some theologians have come to believe in history, the immaculate conception that she was somehow sinless her whole life, she would have responded with something like, well, 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 finally my angel shows up. You know, I've distinctly lived differently all my life. Everyone in, you know, everyone in town knows Mary's different. She's special. 
She, I've never seen her sin. Like she, she would have expected it. She would have been like, of course I'm favored, duh. I've been waiting for you. She doesn't say that. Nor does she say, oh, miraculous birth, you say? Leave it with me. You, Gabe, Gabe, you go tell God. You go tell him, I got this. I, I, I've got this. You, you, God doesn't do, need to do anything else. I'll take care of the rest. No, in contrast, whatever God is going to do, it will not depend on her ability or her worthiness. Far from it. How does the angel respond? He tells her how God will accomplish this miracle and that it will indeed be the fulfillment of what God had always promised. And what was that? That a savior would come to the world. And the angel makes very clear that this savior would be both fully divine and fully human. Notice even in the titles of this passage, he will be the son of the most high, the son of God, but born into this world specifically in the line of King David, thus fulfilling God's promise to bring a savior into the world through the family of Israel, to send a savior for this sinful world. Again, the emphasis is not on the greatness of her or humanity, but on the greatness of God. Now, there is a huge point of application, both for those exploring Christian faith as well as for the church today. First, for the world and for those who are wondering about the truths of Christmas or they're not yet Christian, the world needs to know this. The gospel tells us that we, by nature and choice, we are all out of favor with God. We are out of favor with God. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. We've turned away from him and we've acted like our own little gods in God's own world. And therein lies the fundamental problem of humanity. We are in sin, separated from God. So the question for the world is, how can we be in God's favor? How can we be in God's favor? The only way that we can be saved, the only way that we can have the hope of eternal life with God is to be in his favor. That is the question. The secular world says, you don't need the favor from God. Religious people say, well, yeah, you need God's favor, but you need to earn it. You need to try really hard this Christmas Eve. You better be at the Christmas Eve service, maybe go to both, if you want to earn God's favor. You light that candle, maybe light two. You need to earn God's favor. Indeed, many people live this way. They, they check their religious box because they know they're aware of the fact they don't have the favor of God and I need it, so somehow I've got to get it. I've got to work really hard. But friends, the Christian faith is not about faith in your own ability or your own worthiness. It is about looking away from yourself towards God's ability and his worthiness. It means the world needs to recognize their need for a savior and turn away from themselves and towards God to save them. That's what the world needs to hear. But there is also an important truth here for the church. We need to be reminded 
of the necessity of God's power to live the Christian life. See, here's the problem. Many Christians, many of us today, we believe that, sure, we are saved by faith. But functionally, we think we grow by striving. Oh yeah, many years ago I was saved by faith, but now the way I live my Christian life is striving in my flesh. That is my own human ability. Salvation by faith, sanctification by striving. I've got to work really hard. I've got to earn God's favor. I've got to get more gold stars from him. And so you're carrying this as a burden, constantly wondering and questioning if you are indeed in God's favor. For many of us, that is the question that plagues us. You have a bad week at work. You have a bad day at home. You get ready for church. Your kids are just nuts. And you get all in your flesh and you're like, ah, you just lo absolutely lose it. It's happened on many occasions in my own life. And then you show up to church and you're like, dude, there's no way I, I could have God's favor. But that attitude only shows that we're trying to earn God's favor. Yeah, 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 I know I'm saved by grace, but man, I'm sanctified by striving. And many of you are living that way today. It's like a burden. But the way that we grow is not by looking to ourselves. It's not by trying to earn. It's by humble faith, continued reliance upon God. See, what the angel explained to Mary, it was impossible with man, but possible with God. And I would argue that the same is true for the whole of the Christian life. The Christian life is absolutely impossible without the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is absolutely impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. See, many of us, we think that our own growth or our transformation or how we're gonna face this season or that, that trial is gonna come from our own human ability. We believe it's possible with us. And so we strive and we work and we try to earn. We're trying to get in God's favor and it's exhausting and it's wrong. Let me use an illustration. Suppose that you are on trial in a courtroom for a capital offense and your life today hangs in the balance. A guilty verdict will mean death. An innocent verdict will mean freedom. Now imagine in that moment, the judge says to you, okay, there are two ways you can leave this courtroom. Remember that phrase. There are two ways that you can leave this courtroom. Way number one. I can acquit you right now and release you and you can go even though you are guilty. Or I can postpone this trial for 40 years. I can postpone your verdict for 40 years and I will assign to you an officer who will watch you all the time to make sure that you prove yourself to the court that you are worthy by your good behavior. And then after those 40 years, we can have a trial. See, the application is obvious. And the good news for us is this. God took the initiative. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not some sentimental story about cute little baby Jesus. It's a rescue mission to save sinful humanity 
from eternal separation from God. Jesus came, he lived on our behalf, he died on a cross to pay the debt that you and I owed so that we could have the favor of God. He came to us and he opened the door for freedom. See, true freedom is knowing that God's favor and his acceptance is a gift of grace, not a reward for your behavior. Or to put it another way, true freedom is living from a verdict, not for a verdict. Some of you are exhausted today because spiritually you're trying to live for a verdict. Is it good enough, God? Am I good enough, God? Did, did, did I serve enough? It's the end of year. I gave a lot, God, so I can get my tax refund, you know, whatever. Like, I gave a lot, Lord. Is it good enough? Did I get my gold stars? Do you approve of me? That's living for a verdict. But when you know your salvation is a free gift of God and that you are not only saved, but you are transformed by the grace of God, then you're living from a verdict because you know that you have the acceptance of God in Jesus Christ. See, our freedom does not begin with what we can do for God, but what God has already done for us. Humble faith recognizes this. Humble faith does not look towards the self, say, God, delay the verdict, I'm gonna go out, you just watch me, I'm gonna earn this, and then we'll have the verdict. No, humble faith says, God, I'm gonna trust in what you have provided for me. And this humble faith will be known in your attitude. You know if you're trusting in God through humble faith, a faith that turns away from yourself and towards God, you can see it in your attitude. See, by contrast, there are some people who have what we might call, which is kind of ironic, an arrogant faith. That is, you know those people, don't say them out loud, they claim to have an encounter with God and they are unbearable to be around. They're just those people who are like, well, yep, God gave me my daily vision. Angels every day. Because, you know, I've been crushing it lately. So, of course, I have this vision with, hey, guys, you should listen to me. You know why? Because I met with God this morning. You're like, oh, my goodness. That is what we might call an arrogant faith. But listen, you see this from the Bible, but you can also know this from experience. When you have an encounter with God, it does not leave you arrogant. It leaves you humble. No one who has truly had an encounter with the living God and experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's holiness and power and grace and love walks away fe feeling like, like they're the Savior. It doesn't leave you arrogant. It leaves you humble. I'm reminded of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament whose job it was, was to tell Israel that they had turned away from God. And so he comes out with all these woe statements. Woe to you, woe to you, and woe to you too. But then he has a vision of God and then he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. See, an encounter with God doesn't leave you arrogant. It leaves you humble. And here's how you know. Some of you are praying for specific things in your life right now. Some of you are praying for healing. Maybe you're praying for a specific change in your circumstance or for some particular provision in your life. Let's imagine for a moment that this afternoon, God answers that prayer. The healing comes, the change comes, the provision comes. How do you respond in that moment?
Do you respond by saying, it's about time? Or do you respond by saying, who am I? Who am I that you would do this for me? See, both of those responses reveal a deeper attitude of the heart. How many of us are operating with God in such a way that when he does answer a prayer, we're like, well, it's about time, Lord. I've been waiting for years. That's not an attitude of humble faith. That's an attitude of entitlement. But when you have humble faith and God provides for you and he answers these prayers, you say, who am I? Who am I that you would do this for me? Who am I that you would provide for me? My question, friends, is what does your attitude say about your relationship with God? Is his favor continuing to surprise you? I spoke with a a couple a, a few weeks back. They've been walking with Jesus for like 50, 60 years, and they said something to the effect of, God's grace never ceases to amaze me. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want to be like in the decades ahead. Never ceasing to be amazed by the grace of God. So today, are you looking to the power of God and the spirit of God to supply what you need? Or are you looking to your own ability? Look at the response of Mary. She does not look to herself. She expresses a humble faith, a faith and a trust that turns away from self and towards God. We see an honest faith, willing to to wrestle a humble faith, a turning away from herself. But notice this does not leave her in the dust, as people might assume. See, on the one hand, people think that, well, if you have faith, it's all about being arrogant and religious and self-righteous. No, 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 it's an honest faith. But on the other hand, some people might think, well, nope, it's about beating yourself up and staying in the dust and just depressed and Christians are miserable people. No, that's not what we see with Mary. The last quality of faith is this. It is a hopeful faith. It's honest, it's humble, and it is hopeful. Though she displays humility in her response by not looking to herself to fulfill God's promise, lastly, we see her with a hopeful confidence precisely because God is the one who will do the work. Look at verse 36 to 38. The angel says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail you. If you are of the highlighting sensibility in this room, highlight that little nugget. No word from God will ever fail. And what is her response? I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. See how Mary responds? It's one thing to say it can't be. But it's another thing to say, how can it be? It's the difference between a doubt that is unwilling to trust and trying to retain control and a doubt that is willing to go where the evidence takes and a willingness to surrender. Yes, she wrestles, she processes, but ultimately she responds with trust and the ability of God. And so the angel leaves her with this word of encouragement. No word of God will ever fail. 
This is powerful because it shows us that our hope does not come from some generic optimism. That's what a lot of people think faith is. They think it's some like random optimism. And I'm reminded of the line when the mother in Home Alone is at the airline ticket counter being told that it's impossible to find a flight so she can get home from her son. And she says, no, this is Christmas. It's the season of perpetual hope. That's what everybody thinks Christmas is about. It's just this random, generic optimism like, hey, life is bad, no problem. It's all gonna work out, right? For what reason? I don't know, it's Christmas. That's, you don't get this bland, generic, you know, Mary's not like, hey, why, why did you believe that you're gonna miraculously conceive? She's like, I'm an optimist. It's just part of my personality. Like, that's not what she says. It's may it be to me according to your word. It is grounded not in a generic optimism, but the faithfulness of God. And so notice her progression. She goes from how can it be to may it be. A lot of us, we start with, how can it be? I don't know, Lord. I'm a little confused. I'm wrestling in my heart. But when I look at your faithfulness, I go from how can it be to may it be. She ends with a willing commitment to God as a result. But how can we get there? Well, don't think that Mary had something unique about her that would rule you out from being able to respond in this way. And there are several reasons. One is, if anything, we have even more evidence than Mary did on that day to trust and to believe. We have the rest of the New Testament faithfully documenting the gospel and the rest of God's word. We have another 2,000 years of God's work and faithfulness. And that's where Mary's being anchored. It is in the faithful track record of God. He's never been unfaithful. Look at what God has done in history. Look at what has been recorded for us. Look at all the men and women of faith who have gone before us. Look at the faithfulness of God. That is where we find confidence. That's why this humble faith doesn't leave you in the dust, but when you realize who you're trusting in, it lifts you up because you look at the faithful track record of God. It's one reason why we can be willing to commit to him today in honest, humble, and hopeful faith. But there is another reason why we can exercise this same commitment by saying, Lord, we are your servant. And that is because of God's specific commitment to us. See, that is what this whole account is about. That's what the Christmas story is about God being so committed to you and to our good that he sent his own son to live on our behalf, die on a cross and rise for our sins to give us new life. In fact, one writer points out that Mary's response here is almost identical to another phrase used later on in the gospel account. And it is a phrase used by Jesus himself. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane in the dark, hours from facing that horrible de death on the cross where he would die as our substitute, he wrestled and sweat as though it were great drops of blood and said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
And here's the almost identical phrase to Mary's here in chapter one. Jesus says, may it be to me according to your will. And he went all the way to the cross for us. See, Mary might have risked sacrifice for the sake of her commitment, but Jesus gave his life for the sake of his commitment to you. And that is why you can trust. It's why Paul the apostle wrote these words in Romans chapter eight. He said, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friends, we can say, Lord, if you are willing to give everything for me, I can trust and follow you. And so as we respond, I think there are several invitations. If you are here this morning with doubts, pray your doubts. Pray your doubts this morning. Bring them to God. Recognize and even confess that some of our doubts are actually driven by control. Confess that and relinquish that. And just come with your, your mess and your questions, but bring them into the presence of God. For those of you, pray your doubts. And secondly, cease your striving. If you're just living in such a way that you're trying to earn the favor of God, today is an invitation to rely upon the Spirit. We are not called to work for favor, but from the favor that comes to us in the gospel. God wants to lift that heavy burden from you. He wants to lift that weight from your heart and replace that burden of performance with the light burden of his yoke. Cease your striving. Rest in grace. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. And lastly, trust Jesus. If you're looking for truth, if you're looking for encouragement, look today to the faithful track record of God. Not one word of God has ever failed. May our response right now be, I am your servant. May it be to me according to your word. Let's pray together that we would be in that place in our hearts. Father, God, I pray for those who have doubt this morning that they would not allow their doubt to keep them from you but that they would allow their doubt to drive them toward you. Even in these moments that we have an opportunity to come and to pray and even to pray with others, I pray that nothing would hold us back from inviting your spirit into the mess of our minds and our hearts and our lives and our situations and our circumstances. Father, I pray for those who are just living with that live this life and not your spirit's power. I pray that you would set people free today as they respond to you. And I pray that we would all anew and afresh trust in Jesus. Lord, we need to be reminded of your faithful track record. And I pray that you would remind us of that now. And that in response, we would simply say, I trust you. I am your servant. You were committed to me. I will commit to you.
And for anyone in this room who's not yet trusted you for the first time, I pray that they would do so right now. That they would simply say, Jesus, save me. I'm looking away from myself and I'm looking to you to save me. Would you do that now, Lord? In Jesus' name.